Hello and welcome to the Paranormalist Podcast. As always, I am your host, Kenny Dodson, and I am here with author and paranormalist and paranormal investigator and sensitive Patty Wilson. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of titles. How are you tonight, Just Kenny? summing it up for everyone. Uh, <laughs> pretty good if you're a first-time listener. Um, and we have a very special guest with us today. Who we is do. that, Patty? Would you like to introduce him? I would. Uh, this gentleman's name is Steve Ward. Um, I've known him more informally because I have gotten to know him from going to a lot of different conferences that he's at and getting to sit in, at dinners with him and what have you. And But on a professional level, he is a, a questioner of the paranormal. He seeks out information and evidence. He does a radio show, I believe. And... Um, he has a fascinating take on the paranormal realm, more in the vein of Jacques Vallée and uh, John Keel, and we're going to explore a little bit about what that means. So welcome, Steve. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, I'm so tickled. You have no idea. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I usually do, uh, uh, I have my own show, but I'm, a, uh, I'm also a correspondent on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. You know, we usually tape on Tuesday nights, which is what this night happens to be. Uh, but uh, he, there, he had something going on, so I thought, well, this is great. It kind of freed up Tuesday night for me. So I grabbed it right away as soon as I could. Well, I must say you do have an excellent radio voice. Really? Okay, yes. well, I'll, I'll take that. I, I, uh, <laughs> I have had a couple people say that, and I, I can't listen to myself, so I have no idea what my radio voice sounds like. Don't my, feel bad. I don't want... Like. I don't watch half of them. I, I hate to say this because Kenny works so hard on them. I watch bits and pieces, but not the whole episodes because I just think it's, I just can't watch myself that long. It's boring. Oh yeah. Me. Well, I don't read your articles when I post them. I know that. So there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, Steve, how did you get into the paranormal to begin with? What, what was the driving force? Well, I think uh, uh, my original interest was uh, UFOs, and I was always interested in science fiction as a kid. I think that's kind of the path that a lot of people take. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd heard, uh, uh, you know, the term flying saucers. I think the, the first time I heard the term UFO was on – now I'm going to date myself here uh, – because I am ancient, and I, I do tell people that I was actually a little bit, a little bit too old to serve in the Spanish-American War. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the first time I heard UFO was on a Rough and Ready cartoon. Remember Rough and Ready? Ever see the the old uh, reruns? That's yeah. See, you guys are shaking your heads. And uh, yeah. but the dog and the cat and Hanna Barbera, you know, way back. I but know Hanna were, Barbera. They were captured by the Muli Mula men, these little robot guys, and Muli Mula is aluminum spelled backwards. But uh, as time went on, I read, uh, got into the books of Frank Edwards. Do you guys mm -hmm. remember those great anthologies? You know, uh, I do. Uh, Stranger than Science, Strangest of All. Yes. And uh, but then it was uh, uh, March 1966, which I'm sure you guys remember very clearly, right? March 1966. I was what three. Were you, what were you, you were three? Oh, you were, you were alive. Okay, cool. I was alive. Yeah, if you're well, beyond 1988, man, <laughs> I'm a strikeout. Well, I was in junior high, and we had the, the invading alien hordes were actually landing at our backyards, uh, so to speak, because that was this huge UFO flap. It wasn't just in Michigan, but March 1966 was that famous flap 
made famous because Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was the subject of this uh, recent uh, uh, TV series, uh, he was attached to Project Blue Book at the time. And of course, Project Blue Book was the, uh, the alleged Air Force's investigating arm for UFOs, but it was more of a... Uh, you know, to, to appease the public kind of a thing. But he came in on a white horse. He, by this time, he had actually, uh, he was a debunker originally, but he had started to believe that there was really something to this. And at the time, he was, uh, had a friendship with Jacques Vallée, who you mentioned earlier, uh, yes. who was, uh, you know, a computer scientist, mathematician, uh, emigrated over from uh, uh uh, France. I don't know that he actually emigrated, but he uh, he says spent a lot of time over here. And Dr. Hynek uttered the infamous words "swamp gas" to explain some of the sightings. But the the press that's all they needed. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can go home now. The UFO mystery is swamp gas. And so, and, and uh, strangely enough, ten years later, ten, in, in 1976. Uh, I went to the uh, MUFON Symposium. Of course, MUFON is the Mutual UFO Network. Well, they had their symposium in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was Ann Arbor, Dexter, Hillsdale, where these things were being seen. And Dr. Hynek was there. And by then, he had become one of the good guys. He had uh, left Blue Book. He had started the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois. And his talk was called uh, Swamp Gas Plus 10 and Counting. And then the... uh, the last part of this was a few months later in November 1966 was the first really major sighting of the Mothman. Two couples were chased down Route 62 just north of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, by some kind of a winged humanoid creature. And uh, that was it. That was it for me. I you know, kept uh, reading and studying and, uh, and became uh, – and John Keel and, as you said earlier, and Jacques Vallée became major influences for, on me. So what makes their work different from, say, the work of a person who's starting in the field now? Because I, I have to tell you, one of the things that frustrates me so much about um, like Bigfoot research and even UFO research is that it has to be a literal physical thing. Nobody ever wants to entertain many other possibilities. Um, and I know that Keel and Valet did entertain many other possibilities, but um, – is that the only difference between their work and the the people that are more physical in the research today? Well, it they, it seemed like everybody, uh, Valet and Keel, uh, they all of us started looking at this uh, nuts and bolts, flesh mm-hmm. and blood. Uh, you know, the the most logical explanation. And I'm going to sound like Giorgio with the hair. You know, it's aliens, right? I mean, that's that's the most believable because when you examine the phenomena, you see these strange craft, you see humanoid uh, uh, entities uh, connected with them or getting out of them. But uh, the the book now, uh, uh, I was very happy with that that paradigm, by the way, uh, aliens and in their little silver suits collecting soil samples. And I kind of came kicking and screaming into the other, other, uh, you know, some of these other ideas. Uh, Keel wrote a book called, uh, strange creatures from time and space, which has been retitled, uh, the guide to mysterious beings. I think in there, he starts talking, he, he used the term window areas, which is pretty much the same thing that people use they'll, they'll call them portals or or paranormal hot spots or or whatever or high strangeness areas mm-hmm. where he was trying to account for why is it that it seems like 
all these things are occurring in the same area. Uh, UFOs, cryptids, uh, poltergeist phenomena all seem to be occurring in some of these hot spots. And we know uh, there was Point Pleasant, there's the infamous Skinwalker Ranch, the Bridgewater Triangle, and on and on. But then the, the book that really messed me up was the following book was, this is before Mothman Prophecies, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, UFOs, Operation Trojan Horse. And he had come to a, a point where he started seeing that these things were connected. And it, it seemed like that some of these, uh, uh, some of these encounters may not have actually been uh, physical nuts and bolts encounters. They were kind of more reflective and kind of uh, 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 following the uh, expectations and belief system of the time. And you can go way back into history with that. And, uh, of course, there's a lot more to that, but I had, uh, and I was, I was not, uh, I was actually bad mouthing Keel at one point. This friend of mine and I was saying, oh, well, heck, we might as well just, if that's true, we might as well just give this up. You know, what are we, what are we doing here? But, you know, you, you keep an open mind, you pursue it and you think, well, look, there's maybe there's something to that. So I just barely recover from, uh, Trojan horse. And then I read Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia which makes these amazing connections between uh, so many traditions and folklore and modern day UFO experiences. So it's following that trend, you, you begin to see that uh, not only are these things connected, there seems to be kind of a, uh, a, a, a human consciousness or maybe even collective consciousness component as well. And the, this, it, the, uh, the basic ET, although, there's there's going to be more than one answer. That's right. that's the only only thing I can be dogmatic about is there's more than one answer to this stuff. I agree completely. I've always thought that the idea that it has to all be one thing makes no sense to me. So it was uh, it was those early books that put me on that uh, that path. Now I'm uh, I'm co-authoring a book with uh, Joy Medea mm -hmm. uh, called Parallels and Patterns: A New Paradigm for the Study of Paranormal Phenomena. And usually my talks deal with that, find, you know, looking at these uh, connections between folklore, modern-day UFO experiences. Uh, there are just so many uh, – and you don't get this kind of stuff from the uh, so-called uh, reality shows on TV. So when I give talks sometimes, people really resonate with it because uh, they haven't heard this. Or, or they have. They've read maybe John Keel, but they're not hearing Keel's ideas presented on television. Could you give us an example of what you're talking about? Yes. Uh, and, and when you do this, it's almost like a stream of consciousness sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, boy, let's see. Let's go with, okay, one of my favorite, Joe Simonton and the Cosmic Pancakes from Outer Space. All right. Okay. Classic case, Eagle River, Wisconsin, April 1961. He's a, uh, a, a plumber. Let's see. He's a chicken farmer. A uh, plumber by day. Uh, he's out in the middle of nowhere in Eagle River, Wisconsin. And this craft lands. It's kind of a classic, uh, you know, bowl-shaped object, uh, two bowls stuck together. And he approaches it. The door is open. He sees there's entities inside and humanoid. And uh, they uh, – and later on when the, uh, when the local judge is asking him, you know, well, Joe, what uh, – what do these guys look like? And he was a little bit tongue in cheek, although uh, everybody believes Joe, by the way. Project Blue Book was there. Hynek was there, and, and, you know, to talking to him. Everybody thinks Joe is telling the truth. But 
the judge said, Joe, what do these guys look like? Little green men. And he says, no, judge. They're kind of swarthy looking like Italians. What? Italians? Does, does Italy have a, a, a secret space program? I don't think so. But it's interesting because uh, before I get to the rest of it, uh, Keel, John Keel, was, was discovering that a lot of people – now, this is before the Greys came in and took mm-hmm. over. The Greys came later. We can talk about that in a minute. But we used to have a lot of variety of aliens or entities, whatever you want to call them. And he was getting a lot of reports of – of characters that, uh, that, you know, the the descriptions were kind of, uh, the witnesses were a bit unsophisticated. They would say, well, they, they looked like dark foreign types or or Europeans or whatever. And uh, also, Keel uncovered a part of a press conference from 1948. Uh, General Spatz, one of the big uh, uh, generals in World War II, in part of it, he says, look, there's no truth to the rumor that Spaniards are driving flying saucers or that they're coming from Spain. People are seeing the same kind of, of reporting, the same kind of occupant at, at this time period. And so, but these, these, these guys, they, uh, the one hands Joe a, a, a bucket or, or chalice or something and indicates he wants water. Joe goes to his pump, fills this thing with water, and gives. This is like the old fairy trick, you know, when you, you uh, the food from fairyland, and you, when you exchange stuff with the fairies. So he gives this to this guy, and uh, in, in exchange, and he's looking inside this craft or whatever it is, and it, they appear to be cooking some pancakes on a flameless grill. Okay, so again. You can you can you can find old footage of Joe telling his story, and he believes the story. I don't know what really happened, but so you look at this this situation. Uh, they they want water from an external source. Okay, why you know some you hear some reports where they just put the hose in and they suck water up into their craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't they have don't these poor guys have got this small craft? Don't they have any freeze dried food, you know, or, or tang like the astronauts had? They're wasting all this space. I mean, just it's it's the absurd factor is something that's present in many of these cases. Mm-hmm. And when they examine the Air Force decides they're going to uh, spend our taxpayers money and examine these pancakes because they give them these pancakes. They take the water and they take off. And now we got a got a segue here. Uh, Evans Wentz wrote a book called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries around 1911. He went and he interviewed people one-on-one about their experience with the fairies. Now, when we talk about the fairies, we're not talking about benign little little tinkerbells. Uh, People were afraid of the elementals. I mean, you had to – they could be beneficial, but they could also cross you, and you could really be in dire straits if you got on their bad side. So Evans Wentz – found out that the the fairies uh, t- t- take fresh water, eat fresh meat, but they never take salt. Guess what was missing in the pancakes? The only thing in, in the standard pancakes was sodium. So again, it you know maybe it doesn't mean anything. And, and then you can follow, if you follow the water thing, there's another case in the mid-50s where a couple of miners out in California, they see this craft going over a couple times. And John Black, he's in the woods. He sees this little guy he thinks is fishing by the stream. But it's not. It's some kind of a little entity dressed with – he's got buckles on his, his garment. And he's 
gathering water in a bucket and he follows them outside the woods and this guy takes them up a ladder into one of these craft that has landed. So there's, there's a million more connections between folklore and, and modern day UFO experiences. But you get these these threads, you know, you get the the similar entities, you get the, in, in fact, uh, Joe Simonton, Simonton, if you, you know, in modern day, you think, well, it's pretty absurd, but if it's real, it's aliens. A uh, hundred or 200 years ago, they would have said, it's the fairies visited Joe, even though they showed up in a strange metal chariot. Right. Very interesting. And then there's another, I can give you a brief, briefly, there's a, uh, in 1980, November, uh, uh, Todd Morton, England, Alan uh, Godfrey is a policeman. He's out uh, looking for cattle. He's, that's, a, that's another thread, too, these displaced cattle, like the displaced bulls in the, in the, skin, in the Skinwalker Ranch saga, which is another story. But he, uh, he has missing, he sees a craft, he has missing time. Several months later, he goes undergoes hypnosis, and he, of course, it turns out he's, uh, you know, has one of those uh, unscheduled medical exams, you know, with no deductible and no copay. Yeah. Yes. He, you don't even have a patient portal, you know. You know, you notice how they never say, "Hey, you know, uh, uh, we appreciate the DNA sample, but you need to lay off the carbs a little bit." You know, you don't ever get any good advice. But he's he's <laughs> he's under hypnosis, and. Uh, he talks about the the entities, which are kind of humanoid, but then all of a sudden he says, "There's a bloody dog in here," and it's a large black dog about the size of a German Shepherd, shades of the black shuck, the black yes. spectral dog that haunts the ruins and the moors in England. I mean, you keep you keep uh, getting these things that you think, "What the hell is a dog chewing on an extraterrestrial craft?" If that's what it was. Fascinating. I had uh, I knew a little bit of that, but I never heard about the dog and the different things like that. That's very interesting. The pancakes. The pancakes is interesting. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so, that's why well, they the, came. Just just there's, for there's the quite pancakes. a bit of lore about the food from Fairyland. There's other other. Yes. There was a, a, an incident in South uh, South Africa where a a uh, a black dog, a large black dog, crosses the road, and they they stop the car and think, what the heck was that? And then a UFO flies over. A connection? Maybe not. But there are, uh, you know, we talk about the high strangeness areas. There was, you, you remember the stories of the, the airships in yes. uh, 1897, these, these majestic airships uh, uh, far in, in advance of any Zeppelins or dirigibles of the mm -hmm. time. Well, there was a uh, series of reports in uh, between, I think, uh, mid-April and mid-May in uh, over Ohio, and you can plot the uh, uh, the the, uh, uh, the different sightings in different towns when they saw this thing, and it went in kind of a clockwise uh, circle around Ohio, even lapsing over into uh, West Virginia. And uh, at the same time, now, are you guys familiar with Stan Gordon's research uh, in the early 70s, Bigfoot, strange Bigfoot creatures and UFO landing? Okay. I am very much so. Stan and I have been friends for quite a while, and I've gotten the privilege to hear him tell the stories himself. Well, there's a huge flap of uh, very yes. odd Bigfoot creatures in, in conjunction with strange lights in the sky. Well, here it is back in 1897, and not only are they seeing this airship, but they're seeing in, in Adams County, where the uh, uh, Serpent Mound is, they're seeing what they're calling a wild man or a gorilla. 
shades of the same kind of thing going on in southwestern Pennsylvania in, in 73 and 74. They're also seeing a large black cat in the Chillicothe area. And these large black out-of-place panthers or cats are, are frequent in the paranormal literature or, or in the unexplained literature. Uh, so it's, it's almost like you've got this high strangers area going on in 1897, not too dissimilar from some of the other ones that have been going on and closer to our present day. Do you think that yeah. high strangeness areas change like that? You said that they well, were there then, but do you think they're not there now? I don't know what causes them, but uh, the uh, the level of activity doesn't seem to be uh, as high in, Point Ple in the Point Pleasant area in that part of the Ohio Valley like it was in, in the mid-60s. It was crazy, all the strange lights going over. And, uh, you know, not they weren't just seeing this, uh, this uh, creature, this uh, <laughs> mothman, which had nothing to do with a moth, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, and that's another thing, you know, I, when people ask me, well, what was the mothman? And I say, well, it was a paradox because uh, over 100 people saw this thing. Uh, that, that uh, Teal talked to uh, between uh, November 66 and December 67. And uh, it was about uh, seven feet tall, 10 foot wingspan, uh, not really uh, a, a wide enough wingspan to carry something that, that, that tall normally. Uh, didn't always flap its wings. They had the red, it wasn't just eye shine, but in, like in some of the Bigfoot reports, it was, uh, seemed to be generating, the eyes seemed to be generating its own light. So uh, it, uh, it just didn't make any sense. And then uh, Keel even got some reports uh, early on that some people saw this thing close by. It sounded like there was an engine noise or some kind of a hum coming from it. So what the, you know, is this an apparition? Is this a, uh, a, a flesh and blood creature? Is it a, I can't imagine that uh, they would have had a drone that high tech, but maybe back, back then to uh, give that kind of an illusion, but there's nothing that would make sense. And then uh, uh, there was a, I can't remember his name. There was a Swedish researcher who became a colleague of John Keel and they exchanged a lot of information. He followed Keel into, you know, examining several of the witnesses that originally saw the Mothman, in, including some other ones. Virtually all of them, after they had their encounter with Mothman, uh, had an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena in their homes. Yes. So how how do we reconcile that? And you know, I wish I wish I had uh, you know even John Keel when when he was uh, he was in 2003 he came to uh, the Mothman Festival in September. Uh, for the unveiling of the the majestic Mothman statue, it's, mm -hmm. it's in the heart of Point Pleasant, and uh, people would ask him what was the Mothman, and he would say, "I don't know what it was. You know, I don't have an explanation." But it gets, you know, you keep uh, it keeps getting weirder and weirder the more you get into it. It does. Um, so, uh, one question I have always wondered, and maybe you have the answer, maybe you don't, is why did they connect the the collapse of the Silver Bridge with the Mothman? When you, you know, um, listen to the popular literature, it, it doesn't seem to give me an answer to that. Uh, they were two separate events. Um, was he seen at the bridge? I mean, because just the idea that he'd seen in the proximity to this, you know, time-wise, I don't see how that leap was made. Well, uh, when there, there were some stories that he was seen at the bridge, but these are always after the fact. There have been several 
uh, reports even in more modern times where people supposedly have seen a Mothman like creature. Let's let's not let's not call it a Mothman. It's just some kind of a winged creature, and then they'll say, "Well, you know, uh, we uh, uh, somebody said that they." Uh, you know, they, they saw this thing before this other disaster happened. So I'm always a little bit skeptical of that. Uh, a lot of people just thought it might be something like a, a harbinger, like a banshee or something like that. I'm I'm not so sure. I've I've talked to people. I talked to one Mothman witness where uh, Robin Bellamy, who who believes that, yes, a Mothman is a harbinger and that he I, I think that she believes that it, it actually uh, would ca- cause the disaster. But uh uh, so you have people that believe it caused it. You have people that believe that it didn't cause it, but was some kind of a warning. Uh, I can think of better ways to warn people if there's going to really be a disaster. You know, then terrorize uh, them and eat their dogs. Yes, and candy <laughs> yes. Well, you're you're referring to the uh, the disappearance of Bandit, uh, yeah. who was uh, Merle Partridge. This was a couple of days before the big uh, the the big uh, sighting took place. Uh, although there was one supposedly earlier. And uh, his dog went out there. There was something. Uh, he's out in the middle of nowhere, uh, and his dog goes out. And what? What actually? There was. Uh, There's a couple of mistakes in the uh, in the book, The Mothman Prophecies. And I think some of it. I don't think it's. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you know Keel may have made some mistakes, but uh, I, I suspect uh, uh, in some cases these faceless editors have all also did a little bit of embellishing to make the some of the the sightings look similar. But he didn't actually see the Mothman. He saw some kind of spinning red lights. That the dog went out there to chase him, and then the dog disappeared. And then that night, when the when uh, the scarberries and the mallets were supposedly chased by the Mothman out of the TNT area, which was this uh, old munitions area that uh, was active during World War II north of Point Pleasant, where they first saw this thing, uh, suppose they saw a a dead dog. Uh, along the road. Now, this is nowhere really very close to where Partridge was, and I don't know if we can make that connection or not. But uh, you have to, you know, when you get back into the lore, you know how any any story grows and gets in, gets embellished. Especially, I, I've watched some of these. Uh, uh, I mean, there are some good ones. Uh, the small town monsters people did a pretty good job, but boy, some of the stuff you see on TV. I and my my poor wife, my long suffering wife, has to hear me do a critique on how how they screwed up the history of the Mothman. I don't watch ghost hunting shows for the same reason because my kids are sick of hearing me scream. That's not how you use a trifield meter. <laughs> well, you talk about embellishing and. Have you ever looked much into people's theories afterwards, such as like the numbers theory about how like, you know, things would be uh, like the the chase uh, within, you know, into the city limits uh, from the TNT um, factory to the silver bridge collapsing? They were 13 months exactly. It was like that that type of thing. uh... November fifteenth uh, was the, the the sighting that that major sighting where they the two couples saw it, and then it was the the fifteenth of December, uh, nineteen sixty seven. Right, and so, then people went on to die after the bridge collapse in certain numbers, and there's like this whole thing laid out. Uh, and I well, wondered, I, I just wondered if you thought that, that any of that was relevant. I think it's crap. <laughs> I think that. Uh, uh, there, there's a Mothman death list out there, and it just, it, it's, look, I, I've, I've often threatened, remember an old TV show called uh, Punky Brewster? 
Mm-hmm. Yes. I never watched it. Okay, but I thought we should we should do the Punky Brewster death list and just take all the people associated with Punky Brewster, all the the actors and the producers and the writers, and you know how many decades has it been? You know how many people have died, and so we can demonstrate that Punky Brewster the show was actually cursed. So you have to be really. I, I don't believe that there's a, a Mothman curse. That, yeah, that I think it was it. more of the ones that died under mysterious circumstances as opposed to literally everyone because they would all be dead <laughs> almost. Like, <laughs> you know? well, well, yeah, you know, I mean, and, and the one that was in the in the heart of it, uh, John Keel lived a long time. So, yeah. you know, yes, he should have been the first one to go. So just coincidence? I, I think so. I don't. Uh, uh, it's very hard to uh, to go down that road and get anything meaningful from it. So mm-hmm. I. I'm going to say coincidence. I often wondered, thank you for answering that, because I, I never could see that connection. My brain would hurt, and I'd be going, how the heck did, you know, they get from here to there? And because that's a huge leap. And as a researcher myself, and maybe in a, in a different field, but I would never be able to make that kind of a connection between two things that were unrelated unless I could see some correlation. And so I've always been fascinated by that question because it didn't make sense to me. But people, but you had talked about places of high strangeness, and I do find it fascinating that there are places where things like that do concentrate. And um, you know, I have there are places that traditionally have it, but they do seem to um, almost peter out over the course of time. Um, you know, the the uh, they, you'll see a place and it'll have maybe 20, 30 years worth of um, activity. And then it it's it seems to just sort of slow down. Yeah. And that's, you know, you, you know, we don't really know what's going on. I mean, there are people that have all kinds of theories that the uh, the ge- geological makeup of the mm-hmm. rocks and the quartz and everything is, is a factor. And it could be, uh, you know, we, we get into some of the mounds uh, in, in the Mothman prophecies. Keel talks about how these strange lights would be connected with the various uh, effigy mounds and so forth. Mm-hmm. And he, he wondered what came first. Was it the, did people see these lights and then build the mounds in, in op, paying homage to them, or did, is was it the were they sort of tulpas or thought forms, you know, based on it came from their intense concentration and years of worship in that area? Uh, very interesting. Of course, you're familiar with Linda Godfrey, who I wrote am. the Beast of Bray Road and and has covered the. Uh, there's another strange there's connection with the Dogman and Point Pleasant too. Uh, I'll get to that in a second, but okay. she discovered that the she found by accident that the clusters of these upright canid, these dog band sightings in, mm-hmm. in southern Wisconsin, were uh, clustering uh, near uh, panther, uh, panther effigy mounds and water spirit effigy mounds. And it didn't seem like happenstance. It's just very, very high concentrations of these sightings all right in those areas. So, uh, you know, what? I, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, John Keel of all things. Now he found a, uh, you know, the, the old power plant. And yes. also there was a very strange UFO sighting. Uh, Tad Jones near Charleston saw this, uh, kind of like a retro UFO. I mean, it had like wheels on the bottom, caster wheels, and it had a propeller on the bottom. But in that area, Keel was finding these large dog-like footprints. And he said it had to be a, a heavy animal that between 200 and 400 pounds because of the of the how deep the depressions were where there's a, a gentleman named dr chuck leapsow 
uh, from Michigan MUFON that has, had been doing research into uh, Bigfoot and UFOs in Michigan. He said during his lecture, he said, you know, we keep finding these large dog-like footprints in these hotspots, these paranormal hotspots. And when you look at the Mothman prophecies and you hear, you know, uh, John Keel talks about these strange footprints, he consults with Ivan Sanderson, uh, one of his colleagues, another great yeah. researcher, uh, probably best known for uh, the abominable snowman, Legend Come to Life, right? And, and many yes. other books on UFOs. Uh, Sanderson, and then we have, don't have enough information. It just that, that Sanderson agreed with him. Yes, we keep finding these these footprints. So I, I talked to Linda Godfrey. I got a hold of her and I said, is this, is this true? Do people, are people finding these kinds of footprints in these, these hotspots? And she said, yes, you do have to be careful these days though, because uh, with the advent of all the books on Dogman and so forth, people will get a little bit creative and make their own footprints, which is not helpful at all. But here's the point. You've got four researchers separated by half a century, all telling us that they're finding these these dog band like footprints in these paranormal hotspots. What the hell? <laughs> what is going on? It's, it just kind of shows that all these things seem to be connected, whether we like it or not. And if you go to uh, the Skinwalker Ranch stories, there's a huge dog that plays an amazing part in, in that story. And among many other things, I mean, it, it's just, that's just like a, a concentration of paranormal things going on all at the same time and and for quite a while and then it sort of started to slow down and, you know and that, that those dogs were kind of uh, uh ugly oversized heads as i recall and yes. the legs were either too short or, or too long uh, and it, i remember i mentioned the uh the hot spot in ohio in, in 1897 yes. that that cat people were seeing also had an oversized head and the legs were uh, the wrong length. Now, I don't know if there's any connection or not, but so many of these things have these, uh, these aberrations. I mean, I mean, it's bad enough to try and, and figure out what, what's going on, but then they have this a added uh, layer of, uh, uh, of, of uh, I don't know, uh, of, of, of mystery that doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, as we said about Western Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania has traditionally had a lot of big cat stories. Um, mostly panther, black panthers. And um, I, I can tell you growing up, I heard half a dozen or so, and I've actually seen them in newspapers and I've reported on them myself when I was younger and was uh, writing for newspapers and what have you. And these people are absolutely adamant. They're seeing this huge black cat that, according to the Fish and Game Commission, does not exist in Pennsylvania. And it comes and it goes. And uh, I know of one place where they claimed they killed it and um, the Fish and Game Commission supposedly came and took it away. But other than that, they just come and they go. The one that comes to my mind, it was up in a place called Hindman, Pennsylvania. And it was seen four times by the teachers at a local school, almost as though it was trying to call away a child from the playground. It would, it would go out towards the playground and they would see it. Um, and it, that was the feeling they got. And, but whenever somebody would go after it, it would just be gone. Yeah, that's uh, um, they're uh, they're it's like the uh, there was a uh, uh, a a a priest or a uh, I'm not sure what what his title was, but he went and uh, he went to exercise the uh, the Loch Ness monster from he figured uh, Nessie was a demon and needed, she needed to be uh, exercised from the Loch, but his term was the Phantom Menagerie, 
which I like pretty well because, you know, you get these uh, sort of general categories like Bigfoot and, and, uh, and you know, winged creatures sometimes. Uh, but they don't – they're not all the same either. But every once in a while you get one that's just crazy different. So it's, uh, it's very hard to catalog these things uh, because there, there just doesn't seem to be uh, the consistency we would like if we're, you know, biologists or a cryptozoologist trying to cater, you know, uh, just like the, uh, the, the NIDS team, the National Institute for Discovery Science that was, uh, that Bigelow set up at the Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, if I remember correctly, they said that they documented about 200 different paranormal type events, but none of them repeated themselves. So how the heck do you apply the scientific method to some of these areas if you're not get, getting the repetition that you would normally have in any kind of a uh, physics experiment? I agree. And, and I, I've, I've been fascinated with the Skinwalker Ranch for quite a long time. And you're right, they did. And they also found that once they started trying to um, wire the facility, the whole place and what have you, that wherever they were looking is where it wasn't. And I thought that was really interesting. Like they would pick an area that had been really active and they would put cameras up and they would set people up in that area. And as soon as they did that, it moved elsewhere on the ranch. Right. The, the very the kind of the trickster aspect. Uh, remember, yes. I mentioned Alan Godfrey. He was out originally trying to find these cattle. Well, they found them the next morning. Uh, they were behind a gated fence. They don't know how they got in there. And uh, some lady saw a strange light that night. And then you look at the Skinwalker Ranch. They had that episode with the bulls. They, they, they were high-end mm -hmm. cattle ranchers. There were four black Angus bulls in a pen. And almost the very moment that uh, Gwen Sherman said to her husband, when they were, they were doing some kind of a task on another part of the ranch, she said something like, I, I don't know what I'll do if anything happens to those bulls because they've had mutilations there. They've had all kinds of bizarre phenomena. They were at their wits end by this point. And I think and financially they, they were being, they were being driven out financially too, because how many animals can you lose that are that high end before you oh, start realizing you're going to lose your ranch? It's awful. And so they get there and they're not in the pen. And then they found them. It got crammed in the trailer, this old trailer that had they had been used. They were in kind of a stupor. You know, how the heck did they get in there? Uh, they, you know, they, they broke out and it took them hours to gather them up. And then there's another area when we talk about uh, folklore and modern day UFO experiences in uh, Dubbin, Wales, the southwest corner of Wales in 1977, a three ring circus of the paranormal. And besides seeing uh, small creatures that looked like leprechauns, tall, silver-suited, in quotes, aliens, in uh, about uh, seven feet tall. Uh, the uh, uh, the Coombs family, they were uh, uh, dairy farmers, yes. and they had their cattle displaced a couple times, it, a mile and a half away at the Broadmoor farm. And like a hundred of them disappeared overnight one time and it, it was all penned up and they, you know, somebody could have pranked them. But then the next day, uh, Billy Coombs is out there. He, he puts 16 in a pen. He goes in to turn on the milking machines in the barn, comes back and they're gone. And they're, they're, they find them at the, at the Broadmoor farm. And so uh, Randall Pugh and F.W. Holliday that wrote the Dubbit Enigma, uh, there, there are many, many connections between folklore uh they weren't afraid to speculate because they didn't know what was going on so but they they, they found this uh story out of norwegian folklore about the uh the young the, the maid that was uh 
couldn't keep her goats in the pen. She would uh, would uh, uh, close the pen, lock everything up, and then they'd be gone. So they'd, she'd have to gather them together, and this kept happening. Finally, one of the little fairies or elementals came to her and said, according to the story, uh, you can't put your goats there. They're spoiling our food. So Pew and Holiday uh, speculate, well, uh, it doesn't cost anything to speculate, that perhaps these beings, these elementals, derive their food, so to speak, from Earth energies. And the proximity of these these animals somehow disrupt that. But on the other hand, we just talked about the trickster phenomena. It was almost the very moment that Gwen Sherman said, I hope nothing ever happens to those bulls that something did. Yes. There was a lot of that type of thing going on there. It was, um, if you ever, I know you have, Steve, but if if our listeners ever get a chance to really look into it in depth, some of the uh, testimony and some of the the caliber of the people that were doing the testifying as to what they witnessed is just phenomenal. Yes, the uh, the Hunt for the Skinwalker by Colin Kelleher, Dr. Colin Kelleher, who was the, I think he ran the NIDS uh, uh, investigation unit, and the... uh, and George Knapp, who's an investigative reporter out of uh, Las Vegas, and broke the Area 51 story back in the mm-hmm. old days. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a fascinating book. And, uh, you know, they, they had disembodied voices, uh, a, a classic haunting phenomena, poltergeist phenomena, displaced objects, strange creatures. And if you examine it far enough, you know, so there was another one uh, that Timothy Good talks about in. Alien Contact, there was a very similar ranch in Colorado experiencing some of the same things back in the 70s. And then uh, Tom Dongo just released uh, his book that he wrote with Linda Bradshaw. Uh, uh, they uh, revised it called Merging Dimensions. And that's about another uh, ranch uh, near Sedona, Arizona, where they're uh, uh, you know, investigating uh, invisible Bigfoots. You know, that, that they, they could feel the presence. Uh, you, you had mentioned that before, that sometimes these these Bigfoots don't act like flesh and blood creatures. And there's another great uh, incident uh, in uh, uh, Sally Shepard Wolford, who is the mother of Autumn Williams, famous yes. Bigfoot researcher. She chronicled the weird things that happened to them in uh, 73 to 76 in Ording, Washington. And none of it was co- like a conventional uh, hidden creature in the woods. It was all uh, had these paranormal trappings to it. Yes, uh, Stan, as you didn't mention Stan Gordon, Stan during the uh, 73 74 flap reported um, uh, having people tell him about a Bigfoot that would be walking carrying a sphere on its fingertips and it would just pop like the whole the whole creature would just pop like a soap bubble he tells the story of a lady who shot at one and it popped like a soap bubble these are things that um you know, those people researching the the uh, Bigfoot phenomena today don't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about the fact that it may be interdimensional or that there may be something else going on. They're looking for a biological creature. And by God, that's all they're going to talk about. You don't see these other stories on TV. They're not on the Bigfoot um, research websites as a general rule. Um, they're sensitized. They're just being they're being, um, you know, kept away from the public. But um, the stories exist, and they have for quite a long time. And all over the all over the world, you're hearing these stories. And the thing is, you have uh, you know some some of the people that view Bigfoot as a flesh and blood phenomena, a hidden creature, will treat uh, people that have you know had these 
stranger experiences in the same way that they are treated by the establishment. The establishment mm-hmm. says, you're crazy. We don't have any roadkill. You know, how could all these Bigfoots be hidden? You know, so and not, not everybody does that. But you mentioned Stan Gordon. I was talking to Stan Gordon and, of course, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who we unfortunately lost this past year. Yes. Uh, they t- both told me that they had been uh, they had talked to people that had been interviewed by other researchers and the other researchers would say, I, what do you mean? I don't want to hear about seeing a Bigfoot. I want to hear about the UFO from Alpha Centauri. And, you know, I, no, I don't want to hear about uh, the, the UFO. I want to hear about your Bigfoot report. So they, in many cases, they were, you know, not, well, here, okay, let me give you a classic example here. Uh, because Rosemary was, has always been, a, was always an open researcher. She was investigating reports of shadow people. And we've all heard, you know, these uh, strange uh, encounters. Sometimes they're bedroom apparitions or whatever, but they don't seem to be uh, necessarily ghosts per se. Sometimes they're even wearing hats. <laughs> you have this strange silhouette. She found that a significant percentage of people experiencing these shadow beings or whatever mm-hmm. were also experiencing classic alien abduction phenomena. And I talked to a lady out of New Hampshire in the last couple of years that uh, that's another thing about John Keel. John Keel had a catchphrase. He said, ask the experiencer or the contactee or whatever what he or she had for breakfast. And what he meant was uh, find out about the individual. Don't just take, you know, their sighting, their experience at at, uh, face value, because I found out by talking to this lady in the same way that Keel did with some of his witnesses, uh, she was experiencing shadow people. Her children were seeing orbs in and outside the house. They were experiencing classic uh, uh, poltergeist and haunting type phenomena in the house. And also, you know, I, I asked her at one point, I said, you know, uh, this is going to sound like a strange question, but you, have you ever seen anything like a, a Bigfoot or some kind of an undocumented creature? And she said, well, no. And then she said, oh, wait a minute. You know, my, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law saw something near the property more than once. And this thing was looked like kind of like a panther, but it was standing on two legs like, like one of the Dogman reports. So, you know, people in her family were seeing some kind of a strange cryptid. So often, if you if you uh, if you get a report from somebody like a a classic UFO investigator, will just you know try and maybe get the person if they have missing time, put them under hypnosis, uh, but they won't ask the other questions because they're not uh, you know they're not not used to it. But so often, uh, people are experiencing many different aspects of the paranormal, whether they have had some kind of a haunting experience or some kind of a classic abduction or UFO encounter. So it's, it's very hard to separate them. I agree. I, as I do mostly the ghost stuff, but I I can tell you countless people, even in my own family, um, uh, you know, that they have different types of, of events happening. I have a, I have a son who has, um, he has had experiences with a black eyed children. He's had experiences with, um, I don't know what it is. They call it the, the, the people in the trees. Um, and he's Whoa. very sensitive. The have you ever heard the about, trees. have you ever heard well, about the people in the trees? Well, uh, you know, Whitley Strieber who had the, uh, uh, the, uh, communion book and mm-hmm. had the experience with the grays. He and his wife Anne had received thousands of letters uh, from people that had their own experiences, and one chapter in his book 
is called the people in the trees. Oh, I did not know that. Um, what happened for us, I will tell you the story, is that um, my youngest son, we lived in a house um, in a little village around here, and it had these uh, trees. They're, they're um, more commonly known as Indian saccar trees. There were two of them in my backyard. And um, he was just a little fellow, about four years old, we moved into the house. And the house was haunted. There was a lot of phenomena. I could tell you 20 stories, Steve, on that. But anyhow... He started getting very frightened and he would make me go around and shut all the windows and show him they were physically locked and pull all the curtains at night so he would sleep. He said there was something looking in the windows at him. I never saw it. I did try. But um, he got very frightened. We had a dog. Her name was Puka. And um, she we had a box for her out back. And what would happen is in the mornings, I would take her out. She would get hooked to her box at her lead, go to the bathroom and stuff. And then my next door neighbor was a retired gentleman. He would come out and get her and she'd spend the day with him. He dog sat because he, he enjoyed it. And then in the evenings, he'd walk her back over and she'd stay, stay the night with us. But Ben was afraid to go out and put her out there. He was, she was getting afraid to even be out there. We had to move her lead because something was spooking her. Well, um, there was a parking area right back there as well. And I, Ben just kept saying that he would see these things and they would climb out of the trees at night. And he said they climbed upside down, like their faces and their heads were down and their feet were up in the tree. And, um, that they would come to the window and look in at him. And that was the reason he wanted the curtains closed. So he was really kind of self-conscious about it. He didn't say a whole lot. So fast forward about 50, about 10, 12 years. And now he's, you know, he's, you know, 16 years old, something like that. And we've moved. And his oldest brother, who is 13 years older than him and, and all of us are talking and Ben starts to say something about the house being haunted and he, he didn't like the backyard. And, um, all of a sudden my oldest son says to me, what's he talking about? And I said, Oh, don't worry about it. Cause I knew Ben was self-conscious about it. And Ben's he's like, no, I want to know what did you see out there? And he's really adamant. And, um, so Ben finally tells the story about the creatures and the, the tree people in the trees that climbed down out of the trees head first and how they moved really quick and they would sort of slide under things and they just, they were, they moved very weird. And Daniel, my oldest son, he suddenly looks like he's been slapped in the face and he says, oh my God, oh my God, mom, it was real. It wasn't just me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, did you, you remember how I used to park my car out there? And I'm like, yeah. He said, do you remember how I suddenly decided I didn't want to park out back anymore? And I'm like, yeah, but I just assumed you wanted to park out front because it was closer to the house. He's like, no, it's because I went, I got out of the car one night after work. And one of those things grabbed my ankle from under my car. And after that, he's like, I wasn't even going back here at night. Whoa. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not an experiencer, at least uh, knock on wood. <laughs> well, which son was it that experienced it with his friend in the on a hike around here somewhere? It would have been Ben. That would have been about four years after that, two, the boys talked. And Ben had a friend named Cody, and they were about, we lived about eight miles from that house at, that, at this point. And they went up in the woods, and they were just kind of doing a hike thing, you know, how kids will do. And 
it was getting about eight o'clock in the evening, middle of the summer. So just getting dusky. And all of a sudden, Cody comes slamming into my house. And Ben is right on his heels. And I'm like, what is wrong with you two? And Cody's like, it's freaking real. Oh, my God, it's freaking real. I thought he was lying to me. But I freaking, it's freaking real, Patty. And I'm like, what's freaking real? And he's like, we were up there. And all of a sudden, Ben got really quiet. And he said, we got to go. We got to go. And I was like, why? And he's like, "Just we just got to go. And he said, I'm telling you, I saw this thing. And it was in a tree and it was coming down head first and the thing moved like lightning and it was coming after us. And he said, we just took off running. And I looked at Ben and Ben just shrugged at me and he said, it was the people in the trees, mom. Wow. I've heard, uh, I talked to a lady on my show uh, last year that had, it wasn't climbing down a tree, but the general description of it and, and the way it moved is very similar. But that's what I mean about you get these, uh, sort of uh, unconventional cryptids, <laughs> you know, yes. you get the, the the basic ones, but then you get these other strange ones that uh, seem to defy any kind of categorization. Yeah, my mother-in-law saw stick figures. Okay. There you... Those, and, and there's apparently a lot of those sightings. <laughs> I right. wonder if they're like a children's tulpa, like they want their, their drawing to be so real or something that they come to life. Well, it begs the question. <laughs> Where do they come from and where do they go? Right. You know, we're not just dealing with uh, big, hairy, uh, eight-foot Bigfoots. We're, we're dealing with uh, this phantom menagerie of stuff that seems to pop in and pop out. You know, John Keel felt that uh, he, he hypothesized something called the super spectrum, which he, what he it was kind of a literary device where he's trying to come to grips with, you know, uh, what's causing this. But uh, uh, he also said that Certain people seem to be tuned in. Somebody that sees a UFO is, is likely to see one again. It's, you also might be likely to see a, some kind of a creature as well. Uh, he, he hypoth you know, his, his thinking wasn't static, so he, it wasn't always, uh, you know, he would change. But he, he used the term ultra-terrestrial, and he borrowed that term from uh, Ivan Sanderson. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really just a, uh, a, he said it was a literary device, but he's trying to come to grips with uh, the idea that these entities are perhaps very earthbound and we may not have to look off world to explain even the ones that we, uh, that seem to be extraterrestrial. And, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he talked a lot about the reflective factor. I mean, he would even entertain certain ideas, crazy ideas so that, that perhaps these things were aquatic or lived underwater or whatever. And then he would get reports of aliens with uh, the people gave him where they had gills on the side of their neck. Uh, there, there's so much. If you look at the, the history of, uh, you know, the strange lights in the sky, they used to call them dragon tracks. The Chinese did at mm -hmm. one point, a meandering light was, well, obviously that's a witch on her broom carrying her lantern. And then they became the, uh, the ghost flyers and the foo fighters. And then more conventionally they're, uh, you know, uh, saucer shaped craft. But even now, uh, Ted Phillips, who was a colleague of Dr. Hynek, uh, still with us, and he, he investigated thousands of trace landing cases, or you know, where, where the some kind of the craft or whatever had some kind of effect on people. He said that he's seeing less and less of the classic disc-shaped objects, and much more like these strange 
meandering lights that will that are not very big sometimes. I mean, the size of a basketball will separate and come together. And some of those are even associated with crop circles, which is another can of worms. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the the phenomena is changing, or perhaps we're changing with it. Perhaps it's there's this reflective nature that uh, we sort of maybe even co-create some of the stuff with whatever you know, uh, baseline energies are out there that it comes from. Well, I will tell you that I, I see, I hear a lot from people who have paranormal experiences that they are also seeing a lot of other things. And I think that maybe they are just, they're tuned to those energies. Those energies are tuned to them and drawn to them or something along those lines. And I, I think there is a co there's some sort of correlation between them. Um, I also believe that there's things that shift in and out of our space Um, and you know, they're there and then they're not there. That doesn't make them not exist. That just means they're existing elsewhere for a time. And then they step back into our, our world. Um, that's how I feel. And how often do, uh, I talk to mediums that, uh, they don't just talk to in quotes, dead people. They will pick up entities that are very much like ET. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, Rosemary, again, Rosemary Ellen Guiley told me that when she was at Waverly Hill sanatorium once, uh, it was dark and she was with somebody else and the guy I can't remember the name of the gentleman that was with her, but he said, Rosemary, do you see what I see? And she said, yeah, it looks like a gray, a gray alien. I'm, I'm going to sound like, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, ancient aliens. Mm-hmm. It, do you believe could it could it be yeah there you, that's how they do it but it's what's what's a gray alien doing in a supposedly haunted sanatorium exactly hmm theory are you ready uh, <laughs> oh yes okay yeah Can, should we uh, strap in okay well uh, yes, first, first of all yeah <laughs> prepare to have your brain broken uh, um too late first first of all yeah right uh first of all have elementals always been present or a majority of the time during all these uh you know high areas well in fact john keel would use the term ultra terrestrial interchangeably with elemental i think these whatever elementals are have been with us as long as we have been here i agree and they may perhaps they don't well okay uh sir arthur conan doyle Right, mm-hmm. the famous Sherlock Holmes author. Author. He was a, a paranormal investigator a hundred years yes. ago, in his book called *The Coming of the Fairies*. He says that the appearance of the fairies is largely dependent on the person viewing them. He believed they were real; people were mm-hmm. having real experiences, but their actual visual appearance was dependent on the person viewing them. He and John Keel would have had a fascinating conversation if they could have just gotten together somehow. But so, yes, whatever that is has been with us forever. Well, here's a fascinating little sidebar. I have some friends in Gettysburg, of course, that's well known for being haunted. And the gentleman um, that's a friend of mine who was there, he's very, very good at EVP. Traditional EVP, of course, always being, you know, talking to dead people. However, we have a friend who's a medium who was with us that or with, with them that day. And she was always talking about the fairies. And he would roll his eyes because he's a, you know, science-based guy. And um, so she said to him this on this day, why don't you try to do EVP and talk to the fairies? 
And he's like, yeah, right. And she said, no, seriously, they're here. Why don't you talk to them? Maybe you'll get them on tape. And he did. And um, I have heard the tape. It is quite fascinating. This does not sound like a traditional EVP. I'm familiar with the device. I've worked with him and that device for 20 years. I'm familiar with how it should sound. And the, um, the cadence, the articulation, everything is different. And it sounds different and hollow in a totally different way than a human voice does when it's recorded from the dead, if you will. But we, he got EVP when he asked to talk to the fairies. And she could see them at that moment. She could see them and sense them, right. yeah. So, yeah. So if an elemental's present and it was pissed off about the food thing, then and it makes me wonder if the goats were on some sort of like wellspring of energy that ley lines are, are underground, right? Isn't that how they're thought of? Well, I, uh, I'm not sure. It's some kind of an energy band that perhaps yeah. if, if real is, yes, would be uh, part of the earth. It just, yeah. It makes me wonder if it's uh, somehow like springs up with energy, sort of like a portal, I guess, but uh, of earth's energy. And if it's one of those things, uh, if that's indeed what they eat, then they're like an energy-based creature, but they appear to be flesh and blood. I mean, Patty has experience with elementals, and they appear very real, right? Like very, they, they, they don't do appear feel, like ghosts. Uh, they, they do appear real, but, and I w- but I will tell you that they do draw your energy, and I will tell you that shadow people eat energy, and there's a particular classifications of them that like to eat negative energy and will actually gin it up if they have to. And I've, I've had that experience and I've had clients who've had that experience where it seemed like whatever it was, was deliberately agitating the situation and creating drama and trauma so that the negative energy levels would come up. And it seemed that the, the more that happened, the more active the entity became. Yeah. Oh, well, sorry. All, go, no, ahead. Go, 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 go ahead. Oh, uh, oh. I was just going to say, you, you triggered some, uh, you know, when we talk about the, the connections, we, uh, some of the obvious ones, uh, we, we, uh, the missing time phenomena is very common in UFO experiences. Well, it was with the fairies as well. well. But instead of having that unscheduled medical exam, you might be taken to the their underground kingdom or inside a mountain or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could be pixie led. Uh, you've heard of people that uh, were led to a certain field or whatever, then they had the encounter with the UFO or the landed craft. Well, the same thing with the people could be pixie led and taken to the land of the, uh, the, the little people. There was something called elf burn or elf disease, which is kind of a dermatological condition. Well, in Dovid Wales in 77, people that had close proximity with these uh, seven-foot giants, and by the way, the, uh, the fairies could take all kinds of different guises and sizes, uh, they, were, they were having getting some kind of a dermatological condition of the skin. So there's just one parallel after another with, mm-hmm. uh, with, that where the lines begin to blur between these things. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you all you have to do when you think about these creatures, I mean, this is suddenly a current theory, but uh, is, is look at ghosts. What do a, what a ghosts do? They come in and out as as they get some sort of energy to manifest right and uh then they're back out in wherever like patty thinks that there's kind of a spectrum between the the uv and you know infrared that there might be some place in there where they like reside typically and then depending how much energy they have they they skip 
Um, you know, why couldn't that principle be applied to all these things that appear and then suddenly disappear? You know, uh, and you could always say that ghosts are always there. You just don't see them, but they, they, if they're staying behind and they're not moving on, they're where they are and they're cohabitating with us right now and we don't see them. I got one in my house. <laughs> I don't see her right now, you know, but sometimes I feel her and some other things. Um, and then if you look at like Bigfoots and, you know, just you name it, a- alien, well, what people consider as aliens and flying saucers, what if they are cohabitating with us and they're always there and it just takes for someone to see them or be in proximity to manifest or be near these, um, you know, focus areas of energy and that's how they manifest there so they're always there they just need energy and you were talking about um when we were talking about skinwalker ranch we're saying about the 200 different paranormal events that happened but they didn't repeat themselves um there's this wonderful bit of research that happened and i believe it was in scotland where this researcher paranormal researcher um thought that low levels of, of electrical energy bled into a, a structure over the course of time would charge it and allow for the discharge of all the different types of paranormal activity. So he chose this 400-year-old inn that was extremely haunted and had multiple types of hauntings, like a clock that was broken that would suddenly chime and what have you. And he got permission from the owners to do this. It wasn't damaging to the property. So they allowed him to spend uh, about a week slowly bleeding these electrical fields into the structure. And he had audio and uh, video voice and, and motion activated inside the structure. And there was nobody in the structure. And over the course of this week, towards the end of this week, once he had bled a lot of that of the low level electrical energy into it, the building began to discharge almost every single type of ghost story ever reported there. The clock was caught chiming. There was a a particular entity of a woman that was seen, um, voices of persons screaming, all kinds of things. Um, and And so it just kind of makes me wonder if there wasn't an electrical charge where the Skinwalker Ranch was that was bleeding it out, whether it was manipulated by some other entity or if it was just biological through nature and just shooting out at that point. Well, of course, it had a long history. They, they, uh, the Native Americans called it the – they were in the path of the Skinwalker. Yes. And if you go back to the 50s, I think, uh, Junior Hicks, who was a local uh, uh, high school teacher there, uh, gave the all that information to Frank Salisbury, and he wrote a book called the Utah UFO Display. And that area has just been a a, uh, a grand central station of all kinds of different craft. You know, that's another thing. You know, you look at the uh, uh, when when you look at the general categories of like UFOs, saucer shaped craft, and the way the entities look, uh, that you get, the general categories are fine. But you start to get down into specifics. And everything's different. And another thing is the grays have only been more of a recent addition. It used to be it was very hard to find a gray. Uh, we had back in the back in the old days, we had some really cool aliens, you know. Then the grays came and took over and just messed up everything. But if you look at the uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind film, late 70s, Whitley Strieber's communion book with the gray on the mm-hmm. cover, 
that's kind of the time period, I believe, when they seem to show up in mass. You could find them occasionally before, but uh, if you look at, uh, you know, Apro, Coral Lorenzen and their books on uh, flying saucer occupants, they had all kinds of different, uh, you know, the Pascagoula aliens with the little silver suits and yes. the uh, looks like androids, uh, just a, quite a variety. But so you get these changes and you wonder, is, is Keel right when he talks about uh, these transmogrifications of energy reflecting our belief system at the time. And there's another thing to throw a wrench in it. Uh, if you talk about paranormal mimicry, perhaps you have some real flesh and blood Bigfoots, for example, off mm -hmm. in the North Woods, and uh, some real you know, extraterrestrials landing on Earth. But then you have this, this uh, this part of the human psyche, the collective human psyche that is reflective. And so we get a Bigfoot in Pennsylvania that you can shoot point blank and will disappear in a hail of sparks. You'll get a, a apparently a, a solid UFO that changes shape. Uh, so perhaps some of the, you know, you get the real Bigfoots or, mm -hmm. and you, but you, then you get the, the, fa the phantasm Bigfoot. So there's there's just many possibilities, and it's it's you know it's just so elusive uh, to try and get a grip on this stuff. And I, I I I'm in I I call it a logic loop. You know, you start out you're thinking, okay, it's it's flesh and blood, it's physical. Oh wait a minute, there's these aspects that don't quite fit, and you get pulled there, and then like an eddy or a back current, you think, oh wait a minute, you know what? This doesn't fit. We're we're kind of back to the solid aspect, the physical aspect. So. Maybe I should just take up Scrabble or something or, 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 or cheesy because it's, it's, too late, it's less. Chief. It's, yeah, I just <laughs> I just figured if they were like uh, manifesting into our UV spectrum uh, and that's when we can see them, uh, it doesn't mean it's it's basically are they flesh and blood or are they from a different dimension and what if it's kind of sort of both, I guess uh, like like you were saying, but that might go to show why you never see a body of of a Bigfoot because if it's dead, it's not gathering energy to, to manifest. So maybe they're just dead Bigfoot bodies all over the place and we just can't see them because that's not another, where they reside. And there's another thing you have to deal with when people will throw out the term interdimensional. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean it's a flesh and blood creature that can somehow move elsewhere into another realm or dimension? Or is it like, you know, Ron Moorhead? Here's Ron Moorhead, the, uh, the guy that collected the Sierra sounds in the Sierra mm -hmm. Nevadas, uh, looking at he was out there for years looking at Bigfoot as a flesh and blood creature. And then his most recent book is called uh, Quantum Bigfoot. And he states in there that it's inter interdimensional and seems to talk about it sort of, I don't know, phasing in and out. Not you know, it kind of becomes a physical creature, and but then can phase out into something else. So uh, then, just another another uh, uh, wrench in the works and trying to figure out what is going on. You guys don't have a Parcheesi board there, do you? Or anything? Okay. I do not have a Parcheesi board. Uh, Scrabble, maybe. We could work up a game of Scrabble there, Steve, but not Parcheesi. Well, you beat me because I can't spell worth crap. So. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you neither do i that's why we have spell check thank god oh yes no kidding although some of that spell check good lord you send the message and you see what you sent uh, i'm gonna get arrested one of these days yeah dictation doesn't do so well all the time <laughs> <laughs> as, as kenny can tell you because i talk and type things and then I, he was like what the heck was that supposed to mean <laughs> rephrase but, but, 
But even uh, even the Loch Ness monster, if you follow the research of F.W. Holliday, he started out thinking it's a flesh and blood creature. He thought it was uh, it fit something more like an oversized mollusk. Uh, because the, the plesiosaur model never worked anyway. Mm-hmm. But then he started finding, you know, it, uh, it's a UFO hotspot. Uh, he had a man in black experience on the shores of Loch Ness. Uh, it's just, it's crazy. And when the, when he went out with his doctor, Donald Ormond, uh, the uh, priest who uh, exercised, they went to the four corners of the lock. And, you know, uh, Holiday was an agnostic. He just went along for the ride. And, uh, uh, you know, he didn't know what Nessie was, if it was flesh and blood or whatever. But they come back and they have this almost like a, a psychic backlash. They have this weird storm, this tornado thing. And uh, the uh, it just 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 crazy. And then the next day, he sees this figure on the shores of of the lock that looks like a more like a shadow figure than a man in black. But it wasn't there. It was some kind of an apparition. So you know how do you how do you reconcile all this with what what you what you hope for, what you thought might just be an unknown creature in the lock? And then he finds that these creatures are all over the place. You know, the kind of the Nessie style with the long right. neck, apparently, and yeah, the humps. Yeah, Champ and all them. But well, Champ is in a big lake, but some of the other ones he found in, in other lakes, say in Ireland and in Scotland and locks, uh, there, was, uh, there wasn't a big enough fish population to feed even one of these things, much less a colony of them. So you get these, you keep getting these strange uh, paradox between uh Again, the flesh and blood, the solid, the physical, and something more ethereal. And it just kind of leaves you hanging. Yeah, I guess Um, if it would need a food source, but if it feeds off energy, then it wouldn't need a food source. If the energy it feeds off is our imagination or our, uh, you know, uh, projecting something. It's also interesting. (laughs) All of this. I have no idea. Is that you? Huh. Me? Pretty sure it's not me. It's not. That's, uh, have you guys had uh, any trouble with uh, electronics going crazy when you've talked about certain subjects? Yes. We have. Like right now. <laughs> yeah, and I have no clue why. Well, Dick Redfern, I know he's he's talked about how certain subjects like black-eyed children and men in black, uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, strange stuff will happen. Uh, yeah, it's typically you? between me and Patty. It's demonics and ghosts on both Skype and on the phone. Huh. And honestly, I have two computers that are off. One of them just went crazy, and I'm not even sure which one. And I have no clue why, because they both turned themselves on at the same time just now. Interestingly enough. Very interesting. Yeah, we constantly have orbs around us. <laughs> Whenever we do really? these, like you'll you'll see it by me or by her. Yeah. And we if we do are are doing certain types of things, um, like we did a, a live experiment with a with a person um, from England the other week, and every time we would get to certain things, the computer would glitch every time. Um, when I talk about certain things in the demonic realm. Kenny struggles a lot because he has to try to unglitch me. <laughs> and it might be multiple times. And on the phone, it'll just be something that's pro- that sounds like she's leading to something super important for me to know. And it, it just will go <laughs> until 
the, the until she's over, like right after she's done with that sentence. And I'm like, what do you and think then, of that? And he's like, what do you I think of no that? Clue. And I'm like, I have no idea what you just said. And she'll have to repeat it multiple times sometimes to get it out. And that's been that way since long before we we started the podcast. Like we would talk years and years ago and we'd had those, we had those events. Yep. Maybe you're going to have to do a double layer of aluminum foil. Maybe (laughs) it might be needed. Well, I, I imagine we're getting toward the end. Can I tell you the story of a gentleman that I met that survived the silver bridge collapse that night? Yes, please. Yes. Uh, Bill Edmondson. Now, this is a couple of years ago. We were down. To, they had the 50-year uh, – it was the 50-year anniversary. They, they have a remembrance ceremony. They have the last several years right there in Point Pleasant where they read off the names of the 46 people that died on a bridge that night. Well, the next day, a friend of mine, John Lee, and I, we went down to the, uh, the River Museum, which – you know, the great models of the boats uh, covers all the, the commerce that takes place where the, the two rivers come together, the Ohio and the Kanawha. And uh, we met there Bill Edmondson. Now, he was uh, was 88. He was there with his family, and he came to the remembrance ceremony, And he, uh, which means he was 38 when he was driving a semi across the bridge that night, and it went into the water. Now, it was... Uh, it was just uh, just after five o'clock. It's December fifteenth. It's freezing. Uh, it's the, the sun's not quite down, and he's coming. He's hauling material for uh, used to make tires from uh, going to Detroit. So he's coming from the uh, Point Pleasant side to Gallipolis, Ohio, to come across the bridge. And he just he says all of a sudden, uh, you know, I don't know if you saw the film. You've probably seen the film, The Mothman Prophecies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Richard Gere has all kinds of time to warn people off the bridge. Well, in fact, it took about 30 to 40 seconds for the whole bridge to collapse like a series of domino, dominoes. So he's driving across, and he said the first thing that happened was the bridge was rocking back and forth, like the road he was on. It's hard hard to describe visually, of course. but And then all of a sudden, his truck tipped to the point where he had to hold on to the steering wheel to prevent from going uh, into the door, the passenger door. Then everything gave way. The truck hits the water. He's forced through the window, the windshield, not the windshield, the, the passenger window, right arm first. And it goes deep into the water. Uh, the, the good news is he's, he gets out and he's free from the truck. Uh, the bad news is that from the force of the water, well, his his right arm is is useless because it, that's what smashed through the window. His the force of the water has pulled his pants down, but they're the 1960s pant cuffs, so they're still dragging behind him, which sounds comical except there's still debris falling from the bridge. And while he's coming up to the surface, it grabs him and pulls him under again. So finally, he breaks free. He comes to the surface. Sun's almost down. He's, there's this, uh, this, this material used in tires. is floating on the river. There's a slit there where he puts his left arm through to stay buoyant. He said he looked up and saw this bird on top, which probably had a nest underneath a bridge. And they're looking at each other like, what the heck just happened? And it's freezing. You can imagine how cold this water is in, in, uh, in the 20 degrees outside, December 15, 1967. And so a tugboat captain saw him. They maneuvered to prevent his flow downriver, and they pulled him up out of the water moments before he would have died of hypothermia. 
And, you know, I have never heard a story like this told to me one-on-one. I mean, we hear these on TV all the time. And, of course, they they rushed him to the hospital, put heat on him and so forth. Uh, But a great guy. He was just very, very grateful. And he came down that day, from from, came up from North Carolina to pay his respects. And I thought, wow, that that really brought it home. Because so often you hear about the bridge collapse, you hear the names, and you hear the stories. But no one has ever told me a story like that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. That was well, worth Steve, doing a, uh, I, I did my senior uh, project on the Mothman. Um, oh, really? Yeah, in high school before I was even like super, I mean, I was really into all this, but um, not to the level I'm at now, I guess. What did they, what did they, uh, uh, they accepted it? Oh, they didn't say. oh, I crushed it, sir. I got A plus oh, because, because back in the uh, back in the old days when I was in high school, I wanted to do a just a basic report on UFOs, and the guy said, I- "I'm sorry, we can't justify that kind of report." And I'm thinking, "You weasel!" So yeah. I had to do something really boring. My my English teacher back then was super progressive. She like would let us go by the the Japanese English system where you could retake the test until you got it, whatever score you wanted, basically. So, <laughs> but but the funny thing is. Whenever people would get it wrong and they would learn what the real answer is, then they would they would actually learn it um, because they would go, oh, you know, people learn from their mistakes and then they would crush the next test. And and it's like, whoa, they they learned something or, you know, and, and I doubt they studied any harder, to be honest. <laughs> so she was she was a very interesting teacher and, and let me do, you know, a lot of out of the box stuff. So it was it was on the Mothman. Uh, at least partially. Uh, no, it was completely on the Mothman. Oh, um, cool! Yeah, it was like we had to turn in like a twenty-page um, report and all this stuff, and do like a persuasive speech or you know a different. I, I did I did one on I did all my speeches in speech class on aliens exist. That was my persuasive speech, and then I also did Mothman for that too. And I did one in college where I repurposed that project. And I just used the entire thing and turned it in, <laughs> and I and I got a hundred on that one too. Yeah, so wow. the Mothman really carried me through uh, my education. Well, good deal. Yeah, right. Was a, I was in I was in a different era where they were just too uh, too uptight, you know. Right. Yep. Maybe. So anyway, yeah. Thank you so much for being on. I'm glad uh, Patty knew you to begin with because she knows all kinds of amazing people that I wish I would have known for years. Well, I the, have been uh, blessed. The Butler community, we're going to have a uh, uh, Butler uh, event coming up this uh, spring. In, yes, I in know. April. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of good people there. And uh, there's, there's a lot more to talk about. So if you ever want to do a part two, you know, I'd, I'd be glad to come back. Oh. I was just going to mention that to you because I, we haven't even scratched the surface of everything. And I have su- had such fun, Steve. Thank you so much. And I will see you in April because I'm yes. alternate speaker in case somebody doesn't show. Well, you know, uh, for 20 bucks, I could, you know, make make sure that they don't show up. <laughs> it might I, be I don't my, mean, my I don't mean anything, you know, too bad. I'll just jam the locks on their car so they can't get out for a while. I'll remember that, Steve. Thanks. <laughs> well, do you? Yeah. Oh, didn't you want to plug something before? Do you want to plug your radio show oh, and oh, sure. how yes. people can I, find you and all that? Well, I, I uh, every every fortnight, or as we say on on the continent here, every uh, other week, uh, the high strangeness factor 
on the Paranormal UK radio network. And, uh, and also, I'm on weekly on uh, as a correspondent on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And you can also find that on the uh, a lot of different places, but also on the Paranormal UK radio network. And someday... This book will be will be written because I'm actually my co-author is Joey Medea, who's a real writer and author, and <laughs> he's pulling me along with him. Uh, Parallels and patterns: a new paradigm for the study of paranormal phenomena. And uh, there'll be a few things coming up. I think I'm going to be for the para expeditions people. I'll be leading another Mothman event in uh, June, and uh, there'll be a few things going on. So, uh, and you can find me on Facebook if you if you like. Awesome. Under Steve Ward. So, but I really appreciate you guys asking me. For sure. Oh, I'll, I'll no, link all that stuff so in the description. For, and for doing everything. it. And, and it must have been, I must have been at least fascinating enough to go past the hour. Oh, we're at, <laughs> we're at one hour 30 now. If you take oh, off the time in the beginning, that's probably an hour 25 worth. So well, I don't, uh, I don't charge extra. So we're good. Okay, good. <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> Steve, I can't wait to talk to you again. I certainly will be seeing you in the spring. Yes, I look forward to it. And uh, again, thanks a lot, guys. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Steve. Have a good night, honey. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye.